I'm Olympic and world champion diver, Laura Wilkinson, and this is the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Each week, we are unlocking the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual tools that help athletes reach their biggest goals in sports. Pursuit peeps, I have missed you, but I hope you had a fantastic holiday season and you're ready to kick it into high gear for 2024. In many of our sports, there's this elephant in the room that people don't want to talk about. Because we're high achievers, we're tough. We think we should be impenetrable like some kind of superhero. And it's like we sometimes forget that we're still human. So we just shove that hard stuff deep down inside, hoping that it's just going to go away or dissolve or magically disappear. But it doesn't. It never does. It gets worse. And it starts to show up in different ways, like eating disorders, addictions, depression, It's amazing how many high achievers deal with this and just try even harder to hide it or to mask it. Well, today, Rabia Scott is going to help us unpack some of this hard stuff. And don't worry, she makes it easy to talk about. And we even laugh quite a bit. Through this episode, both Rabia and I want you to know that you're not alone and it's possible to work through all of these things. So Robia became a professional dancer in Hollywood at the age of 16. She danced in numerous stage productions and music videos before being discovered by the legendary artist Prince. She became Prince's muse starring as Pearl in his international tour for his hit album, Diamonds and Pearls. She also graced the album's cover and performed in multiple videos from the record. When the tour ended, Robia began focusing on her acting career. She appeared in over 50 national commercials, various feature films, and popular TV shows like Beverly Hills 90210 and CSI. She's most known for her role as the sassy school teacher Ginny Callender on the hit TV show Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Robia was living the dream. She was traveling the world and portraying an image of confidence and success, but that was far different from the reality that she was living on the inside. Robia was struggling with food and body image. She was starving, binging, and wrestling with her relationship with food and herself. Desperate for freedom, she embarked on a quest in search of true success, physically, mentally, and emotionally. During her deep dive of research, seeking, and studying, she uncovered how to break free from these counterfeit comforts. You know what those are. It's the places we turn to for comfort, like food, alcohol, excessive spending, Netflix binge-watching, mindless social media scrolling. These escapes might offer temporary relief and comfort, but they can easily become addictive, enslaving, and destructive patterns. As an author and expert on the topic, Robia has shared her unique method of how to conquer the counterfeit comfort of food and other counterfeits too for the past 20 years. Well, it's a brand new year, which means it's also the perfect time to start evaluating your skill set and figuring out how you can grow and become an even better athlete in 2024. If you've been wanting to harness your mental game, but you're not sure where to start, I have the perfect gift for you. I created a free guide with the top 10 mental skills that every athlete must have. And it's not just a list of the skills, but it's also a guide and a self-assessment to help you kickstart your journey to confidence. So go grab your free copy over at laurawilkinson.com slash skills. That's laurawilkinson.com slash skills. All right, before we get started, make sure you smash that subscribe button and give Pursuit of Gold a five-star review. And if you really like the show, 
I am going to ask that you share it with your friends. That is the best way for us to grow is by word of mouth, by awesome people like you sharing what you love about the show with your besties. Share your favorite episodes. Tell them what you love about it. Get people excited because that helps us grow to that next level so we can keep bringing you more resources, tools, and inspiration. All right. I believe that there's gold in your future. So let's dive on into this episode. Robia Scott, welcome to the Pursuit of Gold podcast. I'm super excited for this conversation. Laura, I am too. Thanks for having me on. I mean, we know each other a little bit. We've talked a little bit, Mm -hmm. but not enough. So this is perfect. (laughs) Yes. And it's been a while. So this is good. And I love that you have a little bit different background than some of the guests that I have on, but you were a professional dancer. Like, I want to know how did you get started in that? Were you like, I mean, a little tiny tot, like I want to be a ballerina and it just kept going or where did it start for you? Well, I was that little girl who danced around the house for sure. And, you know, put on the (laughs) shows in the backyard and in the living room. And then I saw the movie Flashdance. And from there, it was all over. I'm not (laughs) kidding. I went out and got a perm like that week. (laughs) We're a little little off the shoulder crop top too. Oh, oh, please. I got all the sweatshirts, (laughs) cut the neckline out of them, had, you know, my leg warmers with every outfit. Yeah. So I, this was the eighties. So I was like eighties out for sure. The the flying dive roll, I'm sure in the living room was a big hit too. Yeah. I couldn't pull that one off, but I tried to do the one where the water bucket falls from the ceiling and you, (laughs) my parents loved loved me. (laughs) So it was so funny because it, that was really the first time that I thought, oh my gosh, like I could do this as a career, as a living, not just around the house, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I am that high performance kind of person, even as a young girl, it's all or nothing. So from the moment I was into dance class, you know, my girlfriend at the time, she was in dance class and she took one a week and Mm -hmm. I went from zero to about 15 dance classes a week. Oh my goodness. Yes. So I just went full force, totally in love with it. And then how how old were you at that time? I was 12. Okay. Okay. I was 12. So, you know, I didn't necessarily start early, early like a ballerina, Mm -hmm. but, you know, I wasn't really into the ballet. I did that just for the foundation of dance, but I was more into that contemporary, like, so you think you can dance kind of vibes. Yeah. 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 For sure. So I actually went professional at 16. I was living in LA. How do you go professional at 16? Like what happens? Okay. So I got emancipated, legally emancipated, so I could work as an adult. Wow. And yes, my, my family was supportive of me doing it. And I found a dance agent and this was the time, you know, I'm, I'm definitely dating myself and hopefully some of your listeners can relate to the timeline, <laughs> but this was the time where MTV was really coming onto the scene mm-hmm. and we were all glued to watching music videos. There were just music videos, you know, nonstop. Every band was doing music videos. So I wound up getting a dance agent and started going on auditions for music videos. And my very first one was Debbie Gibson, Shake Your Love. Wow. Yeah. Classic. Yes, yeah, a total classic. And I've done so many, like as many artists as you can think of. And then one day got that call to go audition for Prince. And that's kind of where it all started. Okay. I have so many questions in here. <laughs> like, I mean, are you like some just phenom at 16 to where you're like, this makes a lot of sense for me to basically divorce my parents, become a legal adult and start working. Like it's just not a normal route for anybody. So how, how do you make a decision like that? 
Right. But I mean, athletes can relate, right? So many athletes are are training super young and that's just their passion. And you just know that's what you want to do with your life. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. that's where I was. I was like, this is what I want to do with my life. I'm, you know, I'm thankful I had a family that supported that Mm -hmm. and I needed to do it to work. Cause as a dancer, you know, to be on set, you have to be 18 or to travel and do jobs. You had to be 18. So I was just in it. You know, I got an agent and started auditioning and there was like really not any other options. I was like, this is what I'm going to do. You get in Debbie Gibson's video. Prince picks you up. Does he just find you in the... I'm like, how does Prince just like pick you up? <laughs> you know I mean? So how do you get in front of Prince? Like, how does yeah, that it, work? It wasn't a pickup, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm totally not wording that well, but you know what I mean. I didn't see him at the grocery store at the nightclub, <laughs> but... <laughs> Well, my agent called me for an audition, went into audition. They were looking for a bunch of girls for his, he had a new album coming out and the song was called Cream, which was a hit song. They were looking for a ton of dancers. I went in with, you know, a zillion other girls, auditioned. They put me on tape. They called me for the callback and they said, you know, Prince saw you on the tape. He really likes you. And he's actually looking for a set of identical twins. And you and another girl look a lot alike. He couldn't find twins, actual authentic twins, but he, he saw me and he saw this other girl. And said, you know, you look a lot alike. You should, you know, dress alike, really try to work it, go in looking as twins. So I wound up getting on the phone with her because the dance world is small. You know, everybody. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we thought these twins are going to get not the best part in the video. We don't want to be the twins. So we sabotaged it. We did not dress alike. We didn't look alike, (laughs) whatever. You know, we wanted to just be the dancers. Well, Mm -hmm. long story short, we went in, we got the part. We wound up getting hired for the twins. You know, we go into that first day of rehearsal and we're in a Los Angeles dance studio and... The other gal, Lori and I are just, you know, on the floor stretching and, you know, the mirror is in front of us in the dance studio. And then all of a sudden I look up into the mirror and there behind me in the doorway, Prince. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. I'm not kidding, Laura. It's almost as if the smoke machine came on. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. The lighting lighting went to like a purple haze. I wouldn't be even surprised in the least. I mean, when he performed at the Super Bowl, like he was singing Purple Rain and it rained. I mean, like stuff just happens around Prince. He he had that kind of magic for sure, right? And he just, (laughs) he has that aura. He has that magnetism, you know? Um, And so, yeah, so he walked in and it was just like time stood still. And I just thought, you know, here I am. Prince is standing in the doorway. And then within minutes, we're just all wrapped around each other dancing because that's what you do as a dancer. And, uh, you know, got real intimate real fast. We're all entwined with each other. And, you know, his hands are all over me. I was just like, oh my goodness, what's happening? I really think in that moment, he just thought, I'm going to name these girls Diamond and Pearl because the album was called Diamonds and Pearls. And he wound up naming Lori, the other gal, Diamond and me, Pearl. And then we did this music video and it turned into all the music videos. It turned into into the world tour, dancing in front of, you know, 50,000 people at a time on stage overseas, um, being on the album cover. So it was uh, pretty extraordinary as a 20, 21 year old gal to be able to do that. I can't even fathom. I mean, what was that like going on your very first stop on the tour where you had this huge live audience? I'm guessing you had never done anything like that before. You know, I actually did a tour with the Pet Shop Boys. Really? Yes, I did that previously, a couple years prior. So, you know, part of being a dancer is doing those big shows and being Mm -hmm. on stages. So, you know, I had done that, but Prince is another level. Prince is Prince. There's like, he's an icon. So Mm -hmm. it was pretty incredible to do that and to, you know, get on that stage and to like thousands of people as far as your eyes can see and just the energy of Prince. And when he starts Mm -hmm. performing, what happens on stage and, you know, I didn't quite realize what I had 
because I was so young and I hadn't really, you know, actually even been to a lot of concerts. And then I, I was done with that with Prince and I came back and I went to a concert and it just was someone standing there holding the microphone and singing. And I thought, oh my goodness, like I didn't even know what I was a part of, you know, it was so <laughs> incredible. So what was that time in your life like? I know you say you didn't realize like how big it was at the time, but I mean, were you just, did you recognize that you were kind of like living the dream for what you had been like training yourself to do? Or were you still kind of like, what's next? Is there more coming? Like, where was your head back then? I did realize I was living the dream. I had already had a successful dance career for probably, let's see, like six, six years or so. But after that, I really thought, you know, this is the pinnacle. I don't know where else I could go dance-wise that would Uh. be better than this. So after the Prince tour, because I was with him for almost two years, which was incredible. And then I thought, you know, I've loved dancing. It was wonderful. And I think I need to stretch out and broaden my horizons and now kind of express myself creatively in a way that maybe has a little more longevity. So I transitioned into acting. Wow. Mm -hmm. Had that been something you dabbled with before? I mean, you're obviously a performance artist. So being on stage, being in front of people was comfortable to you, but usually no, I'm guessing no speaking parts. Not as much, but also just being in LA and Hollywood and starting to get into the entertainment industry. I also had a commercial agent. So I would go on um, auditions for television commercials and I was doing that and some as a dancer, some more as just an actress. And so it just seemed like uh, a natural progression, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then I went into it just like as a dancer, you know, I just went full force, you know, acting classes every day, really going after it and wound up getting an agent and then really just kind of started to snowball into that career. I did different shows like Beverly Hills 90210 and then Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I was on for a few seasons. That was pretty cool. Okay. So before we dive into other stuff, I I, got to ask some very important questions. Is there any secrets you can tell us about Prince that we may not otherwise know? Any behind the scenes kind of funny or interesting things that we need to know as, you know, listeners? <laughs> okay. Well, I do have a few things. I'll tell you one story that, that is, is one of my favorite stories. <laughs> okay. So Prince and I had a really fun bantery relationship because I was just kind of sassy and edgy at that time in my life. And for some reason, like we just had a really playful, fun relationship. And a lot of the gals in his sphere there were dynamics going on. You know, there was romantic things happening. And so there were all those things happening, but not with us. We just really were friends. So it kept our exchanges on that level. Like, you know, when Mm -hmm. you're dating someone, you just are different and you're not as comfortable, right? You know, we would play around with each other. And, you know, I was always very much like a jeans and t-shirt kind of gal. Mm-hmm. So very casual and Prince did not like his women to be like that. It didn't <laughs> matter if we were, no, even if we were going on a 15 hour plane ride, like the other gals would show up and they'd be pretty much done up and I'd be, you know, in sweats and a t-shirt. And and so, you know, I would get in trouble a little bit for coming out and about with Prince and not looking you know, like a diva <laughs> music, music video star. Right. Wow. And so, you know, I'd get a little bit in trouble for that. And then I would give him a hard time because Prince was always princed out no matter when you saw him morning, noon, and night, he was always in his, you know, his full Prince attire. So I would say, you know, Prince, when am I going to see you in the jeans? When am I going to see you in the sweats? When am I going to see you in the t-shirts, you know? And he basically said, never, that's, that's never going to happen. So one, <laughs> one, so one day we're in LA and we'd gone to a nightclub, me and Lori and Prince, and we had gone out and it was kind of late. And we went back to his house in Bel Air and 
his chef was up like making us something to eat and he was sitting at his grand piano in the living room just playing off the cuff and just creating some oh yeah it it was pretty phenomenal so he's just messing around and playing something and it's just you know mind-blowing and he's in his full prince outfit you know he's in the red blazer with the gold buttons down the middle and the red stirrup pants wrapped around the red high heel boots and (laughs) you know the red bandana and like just his whole his whole yeah you know and it's probably late. It's maybe like midnight or one. And, you know, we're going to eat something and just hang out for like an hour or something. So all of a sudden he says, he's at the piano and said, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go upstairs and change into something more comfortable. <gasps> and I think, oh my gosh, the moment has come. Like, this is it. I'm going to see him, you know? So he goes up the huge staircase in the Beverly Hills mansion and he disappears for a while. And then all of a sudden, you know, he's back in the room and he's at the top of the stairs and, and Lori and I, we look up and there he is in the same exact outfit in blue. <laughs> Something <In> more blue. comfortable. <laughs> Something more comfortable. The full blazer with the shoulder pads and the gold buttons and the oh, stirrup man. pants with the stirrup high, you know, the high heels, <laughs> the whole thing. So yeah, that's one of my, that's one of my favorite print stories right there. <laughs> that's a good one. Oh, that is so funny. So he is exactly what you think he is, right? <laughs> it's not, it's not just putting on a show for the people. That's just the life he lives. <laughs> that's just him. You know, that's he's so just funny. a superstar 24 seven. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So you're transitioning out of the Prince lifestyle and into this acting world. What was that like being on different sets? Like, I mean, you're on 902 and O, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Like, these are all big hit shows. Like, did you recognize what you were stepping into or was it just kind of part of this fun, like next adventure? What did that feel like to you? It was a little bit just next adventure. And it was such a different time because we did not have cell phones. Mm-hmm. And so everything you were doing, you know, you didn't track it and then put it out for the public to consume. So, you know, you would have all these experiences and then the shows would air and that would be great, but it was just so different. You know, even when I, when I auditioned for Buffy the Vampire Slayer, it hadn't been on the air yet. So it wasn't, you know, I didn't even really know, of course I knew the movie, but I didn't really know what the show was all about. The cast was all about. So it wasn't Mm -hmm. until I actually did the show and then the show came on the air and then it became a hit that those kind of things snowballed, but it was just such a different time. It was so different, but I, you know, I loved it. I loved everything I was doing. It was a bunch of fun. Well, it was fun. It, it was like a little bit of a dichotomy. It was a dichotomy in the fact that, you know, like you said, at a very young age, I was living the dream mm-hmm. and on stage, on screen, and, you know, really portraying this image of confidence and power and success. But it was that the image I was portraying was a little bit different than where I was actually living on the inside. What was happening on the inside? Well, I was grateful for everything that I was doing and I loved everything that I was doing. I mean, it was my dream. I was really blessed, you know, to be able to be in these kind of productions. They were huge. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I was a young gal and I was struggling. I was really struggling with just not being comfortable in my skin and being fearful and a little bit anxious and really dealing with food issues. Although you wouldn't know it by looking at me. With some people, you can see the food issues that, you know, you can see it manifest on their body. But obviously for athletes, for dancers, you don't always see it, Mm -hmm. but it was very present. What do you think led to that? Was there something specific that happened or were you, it was environmental or was it all in your head? Like, where do you think it kind of started? I know sometimes it's hard to pinpoint, but like looking back on it now, like, where do you think that kind of came from? 
Well, I think as women in particular, we all have a bit of that image, body image, weight, beauty dynamic going on. You know, we are created to be like beautiful women. So, you know, there's something good and natural about that. Mm -hmm. But then I think it's just, you know, those voices in the head and all of the, you know, the pressure to look a certain way. And then for me, you know, being a dancer and an actress just exacerbates that. I can't really pinpoint it like I had a specific trauma and that, you know, opened the door to this. I think it was just being a young woman and being in a very physical type of environment where your looks were super important and your body was super important and feeling like, you know, there was that pressure and then just starting to get really sucked into that whole vortex. Yeah. Well, I can only imagine too, because it's not just like, like you said, women have that in general anyways. And I know some men deal with that too, but there's a whole other level when your paycheck is writing on that or getting your next gig. And, you know, because a lot of what you're doing too, it's like, even if you get a main spot on a TV show, you don't know how long that's going to last, you know? So it's probably a very temporary feeling like moments of your career, like always looking for the next thing. And so I would only assume the competitiveness in that kind of becomes a driving force in a way too, because you have to look and feel and act a certain way and, and they have to see you in a certain way. And I had that for diving. I know a lot of athletes have that and it manifests itself in different ways. Like in some sports like mine, it's very aesthetic. It's judged, you know, so it's subjective. Mm-hmm. And it's not that they're necessarily judging us. I'm using air quotes here on our appearance, but your appearance is part of your performance, as part of your yes. dive. It's part, and that's yes. where your score comes from. So it is kind of in the back of their heads, even if they're not specifically judging on it. And, you know, and then there's other sports where, you know, like I know for running for some runners, they worry about, you know, carrying too much weight or how can I get faster? Or do, you know, there's every sport has like a different kind of dynamic or different reasons sometimes athletes turn that way. So kind of walk us through how that was affecting you. And then, of course, you know, we're in that culture as dancers and athletes. Mm -hmm. You're in that culture around other women, around other men, and you're talking about, you know, what you're eating and what you're doing and your physicality and the comparison. And it just starts to become such a big part of your internal, how you kind of process everything. So, you know, so for me, Laura, it really just became like something in me just knew, like I was successful, but I wasn't successful across the board. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to be successful across the board. There was always like that drive in me for wholeness. And um, I think as also someone who's like a high performance person, it's like I wanted to feel like I was operating in an optimal way. Like mm-hmm. I was really like body, soul, and spirit. Like everything was firing on all cylinders, mm-hmm. you know? And so I knew that wasn't happening. And I knew that I just was really struggling. Like I didn't feel free. And so something, you know, was driving me to like, how do I get free from this? Like, I want to be successful financially. I want to be successful in my career, but you know, where I am internally just is not aligning. And so, you know, where do I find the answers? Like what's going on with me and why? So I started to just do a deep dive. I started to kind of seek things out and search things out and do research and read books and kind of start to uncover like, what is it? Like, why am I like this with food? You know, and then my food also just turned into different behaviors. And I think some of these I maybe learned as a dancer or as an actress, I would get into these cycles that just were not healthy. You know, I would really like starve myself down to be super skinny for a job or something. Mm -hmm. And then I would binge because you can't stay in that starvation kind of mode. So then I would binge and then I'd get into a little bit of eating disorders and Mm -hmm. just felt really consumed with food. 
what am I going to eat the next day? I would lay in bed and think about what I was going to eat. And I just thought this has to stop. Like I cannot live like this. This is not what I want. So I started to uncover some things. And, you know, for me, I really started to realize that I I guess the first real revelation I had was just sort of an idea that popped into my mind. And I just realized at one point that food wasn't really my problem. And I always felt that food was so much the problem. And if I could just control it, that it would go away. But I started to realize that my food issues were really the symptom and that there was a root. So it's like, what is that root? What is that root? You know, why am I doing things I don't want to be doing? And why is this so consuming? And that's where I started to get a little bit more into like the just kind of self-awareness and and emotional healing and realizing that a lot of my eating issues were revolved around, you know, not knowing how to process emotions and not Mm -hmm. really knowing how to deal with the soul. And that, you know, the feelings I wasn't dealing with were dealing with me. And that's something now as a coach that I help others walk through and I teach them, you know, like the feelings we're not dealing with are dealing with us. So, you know, we're not really taught how to process feelings and we're not not taught in school. Most of us aren't taught at home. And especially those of us who are kind of like going after like high level career stuff, athletes, and, you know, we get so focused on achieving Mm -hmm. and taking action toward becoming excellent in that way. But often we don't really know how to sort of deal with the things that are even going on inside of us. Oh, so well said. How long were you dealing with these food issues that were the symptom before you recognized that it was a problem? And then how long searching for like understanding that there was a root here somewhere and searching for that? Like how long was that kind of process for you? Well, I would say the food issues started, honestly, when I was really super young, because I also had a mom who just thought that was very important. You know, it was just super important to her. And she was always talking about her weight. And so around the age of seven, I got one of those little calorie counter booklets. I don't know how I got that, but I started looking up my, you know, like looking up my peanut butter and jelly sandwich and seeing how many calories was in that. And So yeah, it started way back, even before dancing, just being aware of that it was important to be thin. Man, that's so early. Yeah, seven. When when did you kind of recognize that like, okay, I can't be like this anymore, but I I don't know what the problem is. Like I'm I'm starting to seek for answer. Like how long was that process in this seeking journey to find like the root core (laughs) issue? (laughs) These are great questions. No one's really asked me these. I love that you're asking that. So it started probably around seven where I got serious about it. And then I would say about 27. So I had a good 20 years Mm. in all of it. And then around 27 is where I started to look at what was being produced in my life and looking at the chain smoking and the eating issues and the over shopping and mm-hmm. the looking for love in all the wrong places and all mm-hmm. just realizing like I was being driven into these behaviors that were just destructive. I just think that's really important to kind of highlight that these things, they don't just appear one day and then they're gone the next. Like these are seasons and sometimes really long seasons where it's just beginning or it's developing or it's full blown or we realize this is not okay. Like there's something wrong and I need to figure things out. Like I I think people just need to know they're not alone in this because uh, I feel like the vast majority of people deal with this on some level, whether they talk about it or not might be a whole other thing or they realize it or not. But I think, I think most people deal with some kind of whether, even like you said, whether it's eating or chain smoking or something else that we're, you know, we're stuffing feeling down or, or not, you know, processing emotions or whatever it might be. Like 
yes, we're coping. We're, we were using terrible coping skills a lot of the times um, yes. to, to mask things. And what was this journey is you're like, okay, there is a route to this. I know the food is a symptom. I want to figure out like, how do you start to even discover that it's your not processing feelings? There, right. there is more than just the food. Like how, how did you even figure that out? Like okay. most people can't just, they're not self-aware enough. Like, and that's, I think that's something I work with a lot of athletes coaching mindset and performance. And a lot of the times we just have to start working on being self-aware. Like, what does that even look like to be honest with yourself and aware yes. of where you're at and what's going yes. on in your life and how certain things you do affect other things that you do and you don't even know they're connected, you know? So walk me through how you became kind of self-aware because that's not an easy thing to do. Oh my goodness. You've just said a mouthful. I mean, first of all, awareness is the first step of change. You know, you can't change what you don't know and what you don't see. So it's like, how do I recognize that I'm doing certain behaviors and they're coming from a different route? See, I think also society trains us to just deal with symptoms. Yeah, so if I'm overweight, on it. yeah, put a bandaid <laughs> on it. You know, if I'm overweight, you just like go on a diet. You try to white knuckle things. You try to quit the smoking. You try to stop the addiction. You try to stop drinking the alcohol. But the bottom line too is that you'll even see in a lot of different recovery programs when you stop one of the, the addictions, if you don't deal with the root, it just parlays into a different addiction. Yep. Yeah. And you know, you see that in AA all the time. They do some good work in there, but if you don't really get to the roots, you just start chain smoking or you start doing other things. And as I started to study this, I even realized with the food issues, like I studied, I went on a deep dive because I'm just a studier. And mm -hmm. so you know, I looked into like people that did gastric bypass. And I'm not saying that someone should or should not do that. I'm just saying this was the research I found, you know, to get to that level of overweight and then using that as the solution where you just take out a, a part of your stomach so it can't be full. Statistics were showing that many of the patients that went through gastric bypass were then drinking crazy amounts of alcohol in a day because they couldn't eat anymore, but they still didn't like deal with what was driving them in the first place. So all that to say, you said just a moment or two ago, you said, I think most people deal with this. I actually think everyone deals with this on some level. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I call them counterfeit comforts mm -hmm. because they're those comforts that we turn to that they're an imposter. You know, they give us some temporary satisfaction, some temporary relief, but they're really a counterfeit. You know, food can't deal with the emotional things. You know, they don't call it comfort right. food for nothing. It's like we go to those foods because right. we're looking for comfort and they give you a little like temporary comfort. But at some point you have to realize like, what am I really dealing with? And how can I meet this need in a way that is more lasting, is more satisfying? That almost makes me feel like, you know, when you think of addiction in general too, or like drug addiction, you know, you they get that first hit and there's this amazing euphoria that comes. So they're always chasing that same feeling that same euphoria, but it will never be like that again. And so you you go down this rabbit hole seeking that comfort you're talking about, yes. whatever, whatever avenue it is, always trying to get back to that initial feeling of comfort and it never satisfies because you're not actually comforting yourself. You're just trying to hide it or cover it or but we don't know what to do about it. Yeah. Never as good as the first time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it drives you to more and more. You know, obviously there's yeah. nothing wrong. You know, food is a beautiful thing. Like it's wonderful to enjoy foods. You know, but then when you start to realize like you're being controlled by something and I didn't want to live a life where I felt like I was out of control and something else was controlling me. So that's where I realized like, gosh, you know, these feelings I'm not dealing with, they are dealing with me and I'm trying to eat them down and smoke them down. And that's when I started to just kind of have to realize the first thing I would say I did is when I was in this counterfeit comfort behavior, 
I started to train myself. And let me tell you, this did not come naturally. Like this is counterintuitive. It doesn't come naturally. But, you know, just like as a dancer, kicking your leg up by your head doesn't come naturally. But you get, you know, you get there because you just train your muscle to do it. You train it over time. So I made that correlation as an athlete, as a dancer. I was like, I'm trained to react and respond a certain way right now. And I have to retrain myself. So I would see myself in that counterfeit comfort behavior, like that overwhelming drive to overeat, to binge, you know, and I, and I would have to just kind of stop myself. And I had a little funny aha moment. You know, I was in this and I was, I think I was journaling or something. And I had a funny moment where I had like a little thought drop into my mind. And it was about, you know, being in grade school when we all sat in those little tiny desks at grade school and you watched the video, you had like a, a little, like a group meeting and they put on that video of what would happen in a fire, you know, and mm-hmm. you had to sit there and you'd watch, you know, what do you do in a fire? Do you get up and like run through the halls? No, you don't <laughs> do any of that. The first thing you do is stop, drop and roll. And so as I was working through this whole process, like that kind of came up into my head out of nowhere. And I just kind of started giggling because I was like, I think that's an answer when I feel like that fire to sort of act out, like I have to start to retrain myself just to stop, to stop in the moment and just do like a little temperature check. Like, where am I right now? Because a lot of times I didn't even realize I was having any feelings. I was just kind of going into behavior. So I'd have to stop myself and be like, let me pause. Let me stop, drop and roll. Let me like sit down for a second. I want to like shove Oreos in my mouth at full force, but let me just try to like check in. Like, where am I right now? Why do I feel uncomfortable? Like what happened today? And then I would start to like track back. Like, did something happen at an audition? Or, you know, was there a bill that came in that all of a sudden made me nervous financially? Or did someone say something or do something? Or I felt like a rejection or, and I would start to just like become self-aware. Like, why am I doing this? And this is something that I now coach as well. Mm -hmm. You know, instead of focusing on what we're doing, it's like the why behind the what. Yes. Oh, big time. I love that. And I, I I talk to athletes a lot, like I said, about mindset and things. And, and a lot of it is, yes, you can retrain yourself, but if you have no reason for doing so, you won't keep doing it. Like you need to know why why I'm doing this and why changing it is going to be better. Because yes. when it gets hard, you just won't do it, you know, unless you know there's a purpose behind it. I love that. And I, it, I thought it was really interesting when you were saying that you were being controlled by food. It's really interesting because I remember going through some eating things and I always thought that's how I was taking control because I felt like I didn't have control any other way. So I thought I was taking control of things by controlling what I was eating or not eating or whatever. And in reality, I wasn't really controlling anything. (laughs) It just, it was my facade of control. And really I had zero control. Like I was just a hot mess. So it's really funny how we think we're in control doing these things sometimes because we're trying to find this solution or this counterfeit comfort. Like I love how you put that, but it's really controlling us in the moment. I love how you're talking about stopping in the moment and doing a temperature check. Like what is making me uncomfortable? Why am I feeling this way right now? I love to talk to people about journaling and Mm -hmm. why it's so important. And it's not like you have to write a novel every day because some people just hate writing and I get that. But like, if you can just make some bullet points in the day of like, what happened today? And how did I feel about today? And what was going on? Like just to start like you said, becoming self-aware, like what happens and how do I feel when that happens? And then how do I handle it? And is that good or bad? Like just kind of looking at how you're processing things and what is affecting you certain ways can help you the next time that comes up. And like, you know what, maybe I, I need a better way to deal with this next time. And you can kind of catch yourself in that next moment. Like, nope, this is not going to be a healthy reaction for me. I need to change it because last time I did this and it turned out horrible or whatever it is. Like, 
but just like recognizing those things. And I think journaling can be really, really helpful in that. Have you, I, I'm guessing you've done some journaling because you've, you've yes. written a book. So yes. <laughs> you've done I, a little. I agree with you a thousand percent. I think journaling is an incredible tool. So many people have trouble with journaling. And I think I just equate that to the fact that we are not used to being contemplative and reflective, especially nowadays. We are further from it than ever because whenever we have a free moment, we don't even sit with our own thoughts anymore. We're totally eyeballs in a phone, eyeballs Mm -hmm. in a phone. So I would say I agree with you so uh, like wholeheartedly. I would say the first step is starting to journal just for a few minutes in the morning and a few minutes in the evening. And I think this is also a great little tip. If you can, this is big, but I think it's important for everybody. First 15 minutes of the day, no screens. Ooh, I like that. So it's like we all probably reach for our phone because we turn our alarm off on our phone. And then you're just like, oh, I have my phone in my hand. You just do a quick socials check, a quick email check. And then your clean slate is already cluttered. So I try to train myself and those I work with, you know, your first 15 minutes, don't look at the phone, even get an alarm clock. I have all my people that I work with. We we keep our phones out of our room Mm -hmm. and we get an old school alarm clock. And so Mm -hmm. our phone isn't even on. And the very first thing you do is just learning how to kind of be quiet for a minute, be still for a minute, even observe like, where am I? What are those first thoughts racing in my head? Where do I go first thing in the morning? check in with yourself, pick up your journal. And you don't, like you said, you don't have to write a big book or a big novel, but you just do a little temp check. Like, where am I right now? What's important to me today? Mm -hmm. And then the same thing at the end of the day, last few minutes, you do a little assessment, like kind of what triggered me, what's my emotional state and why? And it Mm -hmm. only needs to take a few minutes, but it's those little skills that start to get you tuned in to exactly what you said, start to see the patterns. And for me, I started to see those patterns of, it does go all the way back to the roots. It even goes back to the childhood stuff of like, you know, not feeling, having those abandonment issues and having those rejection issues and not coming from the stable family and all of those things that had affected me emotionally that I never knew how to deal with. And as you get older, it just snowballs into, you know, you just continue to look outside yourself. You're looking for success. You're looking for money. You're looking for the relationship. You're looking for the perfect, to become the perfect physical specimen. You know, you're looking to all these things to like bring you that value. And all those things are great. Like, I think we should be successful and have money and be in great shape. And like, I love all of those things. Right. They're not bad. They're not bad things, right? No, they're great things. They're wonderful things. But there has to be that core sense of like rest and self and identity and value and knowing how to feel and deal in order to heal and realize like, what are, (laughs) you know, like, what are those driving forces in there? Because those will keep perpetuating those roots of abandonment, those roots of of rejection. They'll keep driving us. I love that. And I, you know, we were talking about being quiet, like checking in with yourself. It's really funny, not funny. My kids got in trouble (laughs) the other day um, before Thanksgiving break with their iPads. They were being sneaky mm-hmm. and getting into something they should have gotten into. Um, mm-hmm. So the entire family was banned from technology for like all of Thanksgiving weekend. <laughs> but you know what? It was beautiful. And we were outside the whole time. We went for yeah. long walks. We talked, we played games, we got silly, we got creative. My daughter started writing a book together. Like all these things were coming because we had time to just sit and process and just be quiet and walk out in nature and just kind of like, like get that reset button, you know, a little bit. And it was beautiful. And now we had a little talk the other day. We're like, look how nice that was. Like, did you guys enjoy that? They're like, yeah. And we're like, 
I think we need less technology and more of that. Let's find a way to get there. And it's hard in this world when all your friends are doing that, or this is what everybody is doing. This is where you find out what's going on. And because people don't get together like they used to, like everything's on your phone or whatnot. But it's hard trying to be in a culture, but let yet separate to make yourself healthy from the culture sometimes, you know? It kind of, and I think that's why people don't like to put their phones down because they feel disconnected. But that's kind of what you need to reconnect with yourself. So how, or maybe the better question is why should we disconnect sometimes from our phones, from the little culture thing that's going on that we feel like we need to be a part of to reconnect to ourselves? And then once we start doing that and realizing maybe there are these things we haven't processed, like how do we process those things? Because I'm sure there's often deep-seated things we were talking about that lead to these counterfeit comforts we're seeking. So how do we start processing these things that we realize are issues that are bothering us? Oh my gosh. I mean, that's a deep one. First of all, I want to just jump back into what... Yeah, thanks. (laughs) Thanks. Just what you said a moment ago, I love that you had that revelation with your family. Like I'm always wishing we could just go back to Little House in the Prairie moments. (laughs) You know, we're like pause playing the violin and we're sitting around the fire and like... So I'm I'm always trying to cultivate that in our family. And it's just not easy because Mm -hmm. we all love to like be on our screens. It's intense. Um, Gosh, I mean, I take people through a process, you know, when I work with people, as I'm sure you do when you're coaching someone, Mm -hmm. it really does help to have some mentorship or some coaching. I think finding someone, I think everyone needs mentors. Like we all need people that we're kind of even with that are sort of our, our friend group. I believe people, we need people that we're supporting and helping to nurture and bring the best out of them. And then even as leaders, we need people that can help us as well. There's something about these areas that they're just blind spots for us. Yeah. And so to have someone outside of yourself who can work with you a little bit, walk with you, whether it's counseling, whether it's coaching, mentorship, if it's spiritual, you know, if you're someone who has that faith as a part of your journey, that's a great place to hook into. If that's not a part of your experience, then you just start to look into it. You research, you start to know yourself, you start to study things like personality and, and, you know, everything is out there. You can get so many awesome books and listen to teachings and and just start to make your way through. But it is counterculture. It is for sure counterculture. But then you have to look at our culture. Our culture is very stressed. Mm -hmm. Our culture is like high-level dopamine addicts because we're all going for like our dopamine hits every five seconds on our phone. And And so for me- We're medically band-aiding a lot of things too. And the medical thing. Yeah, we just look to that, deal with those symptoms. And anytime you medically do something, it might help one symptom, but it usually causes 10 more. Right. So I'm always about the holistic type of approach when you can. So much sickness and disease, emotional and physical, comes a lot from soul stuff, emotions, mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I kind of just look at the fruit. I look at like the result of where I am when I'm just plugged in 24-7 and realizing like, I don't like how I feel. Mm-hmm. I don't like how I'm producing. When I'm centered everything is birthed from who we are and where we live internally. I'm a big believer that outer experience is a reflection of inner reality. So if you want to be high level career, high level athlete, high level, whatever, like you can just do all those steps and that training and you can get to a certain place. But if you really want to go to that next level and like be like at the top of the top of the top, everything has to be aligned because like our whole purpose is birthed from that core of identity. So I think it's just as important to spend that time like looking in and kind of training in that 
inner soil (laughs) the same way we train like externally. I think that's great. I I love that you touched on having like a mentor or a coach or a counselor or somebody who's walking alongside you because sometimes it's just easier for people to see who aren't on the inside, who are just looking from the outside. Sometimes it's easier for them to see what's going on where we have trouble recognizing it because we're in the woods. It's hard to see sometimes the trees for the woods, right? Because you're stuck in the middle of it. So having somebody who can help and and help hold you accountable too, because you can read all the books in the world, you can do all the programs, you can know all the things, but unless you are walking it out and actually like learning from it and growing and making changes, Agreed. Um, you know, like I've coached athletes and then they report back to me and they've done nothing. And I'm like, well, how do you expect to do anything? Like I can tell you all the best things in the world, but if you don't do anything with it, like that's on you. You're not going to grow. You're not going to change. Like nothing's going to happen. Like you have to take some accountability there and start doing that. So having somebody who can walk alongside you with that and hold you accountable to do your homework and to make the changes and check in with you and really just verbalizing that too. Because I think some of this also happens because we are maybe ashamed of the things that we're doing, of maybe those comforts Mm. that we are seeking, or we think that we should be strong enough to not have those weaknesses or whatever. You know, we see us, we don't want to tell anybody what's going on. So we hold these things very private and inside. And when you can be vulnerable and open up to somebody that you trust, there's healing power just in that, like just getting it out because you're not holding it in anymore, right? Just letting it escape and like not grow and fester into this ugly thing inside you, but to get it out and recognize that it's a problem. When you start speaking that out loud, like thinking it's one thing, but then actually speaking that out loud, like this is a problem, it starts to become real and you recognize that, okay, now I've said it's real. I have to do something about it. Absolutely. And accountability is key. I mean, I believe in reading, I believe in watching things and studying and all you can grow so much from that. Mm -hmm. But when you plug into mentorship and community, it really just does take things to the next level. Yeah. And so a lot of people I work with, it's just getting them over the mindset too of investing in themselves like that financially. Like that's another area that a lot of people don't understand. Like that is a great place to spend money. And, and really invest your time and invest your finances because we all do better with a structure of accountability. We just all do. It doesn't matter how yeah. disciplined we are. When you have that accountability and then when you have a coach, someone like I like to consider myself like I'm like your human navigation system. If you want to get somewhere and you don't have a map and you get in the car, like you might make a couple good turns, but you're probably going to make some wrong turns and be like 15 minutes out of your way and then get all frustrated and confused. But if you have a coach, a mentor who is a, you know, an expert in a certain area where you want to achieve, and they just simply tell you, you know, turn right, turn left, turn right, like they'll give you the quickest, most direct path to where you want to go. Yeah. So I've learned that in the last few years, like literally throw money at the problem because, <laughs> <laughs> because I have a lot going on and, I, and I'm really passionate about growth and I'm really passionate about excellence. And I don't want to watch 5,000 YouTube videos. Like I want right. to find someone who's really skilled in a certain area, whether it be emotional healing or whether it be finances or whatever it is I'm looking for at that moment mm-hmm. and find someone who's trustworthy, who's you know skilled, who's got some track re- record and some results and some proof. Mm-hmm. And then link in with them, you know, link in, let them teach you, let them save you a lot of time and a lot of energy um, mm-hmm. to get you where you want to go. I like that you also talk about how like mentors, coaches, like there's all different levels. And I feel like I've had that in both my sport and my business and in what I'm doing now, like all the things like I've had coaches in diving, in sports, um, or, you know, weightlifting coaches and Pilates coaches and coaches and everything <laughs> teaching me how to do it, but also older athletes who were speaking into me or that I could go ask questions of or whatnot, or I just go find athletes to ask questions of and and find my answers, you know, and then 
in the business world. Like I had a friend who was really good at business that used to be on my diving team. So I just started picking his brain and he was so gracious to kind of help get me kickstarted. And he just was awesome. And then at that point, I was like, okay, I think I need next level. I need somebody who can actually, if I spend money, they'll have more time to like work with me. So I did that, you know, and then, and now I've got, you know, other like sports psychology people I talk to, and I've got all kinds of resources that I pull from because I know I don't have all the answers and I'm still growing and learning. And while we're still here on this earth, we are all still growing and learning. You should not have all the answers. If you think you do, you're probably missing something really big. So Mm -hmm. it is good, I think, yes, to have people and to trust people to walk alongside you. And if you try somebody and they're not a good fit for you, it's okay to try somebody else. Like it's okay to work with another person because not everybody's personality is mesh, not everybody's way that they do things mesh. So it's it's okay to seek out different people till you find that person that you can trust and you can feel vulnerable with and, and walk through that journey with. Absolutely, 100%. And when you come across someone and there's just a connection, it feels a little kindred. It feels like they're speaking things right into you. Mm-hmm. Like you pay attention to that. You know, so when I'm teaching something or speaking somewhere, you know, there's certain people that will just say, gosh, it was like you were speaking right to me. And I know that there's a connection there. Like, and and they know that I specifically carry something for them. And I I pay attention to that too. When I find someone, you know, a lot of people have great information, but there's certain people that it's just like something lights up and you're like, Ooh, there's something there. Like I need to glean from that. So, and I agree with you. I have business coaches I have for physical health. Like I go across the board as well. And I just love it. I love having people speak into my life. I love having people give me like the best of the best. And and then I love doing that for others because I have areas of strength and I pour out from those areas of my strengths. And then I have areas of weakness where I need to seek others that are strong in that area. So, you know, for me and those that are, that are listening right now, if if that emotional healing and really wanting to understand how to process that, how to uncover it, how to work through it, how to especially deal with overcoming those food issues, not in a way of dieting, but like from an inside out, that's kind of my my little niche. I love that. Yeah. So Rabia, where can we connect with you? Buy your book, like look into all the things that you're doing. Like where can we connect with you online? Okay. Well, I did just write a little free guide and it's um, like a, like, yeah, like a little 15 minute read, easy breezy. And if you go to freefromstruggle.com, you can download that freefromstruggle.com. And that gives you a little bit of what we talked about today about how to look into those food issues, but realize that, you know, there's some emotions driving, there's some mindsets and kind of start to look at it from a different angle. So that's the first thing I would send people to. Mm -hmm. Um, You could always find me on my website, which is my name, robiascott.com. And I would say that those would be the best two places to connect. Awesome. We'll make sure to link to those in the show notes so people can find them easy. But um, I love that. And athletes, coaches, whoever's listening, know that like there is a way out from this. You don't have to be controlled by, even though you might think you're controlling things, you don't have to be controlled by these kind of, like Robia says, counterfeit comforts. Like You can overcome that and move past it. It may always be in the back of our heads in different ways, but there are ways to grow and heal from that. So Rabia, we really appreciate you coming on and sharing all this with us and being talking about a subject that not a lot of people like to talk about. I don't like to talk about it. It's not like my proudest thing to talk about, but it's important yeah. because we all, like you said, we all struggle with it in some ways. So we have to talk about it. Exactly. I mean, I just want to see people. I, I was in a, in the pit for a long time and now I'm on the other side and you know, it's just awesome to pull people out. And I really love what you said about like, we just don't want to keep things in the dark, you know, because they fester in the dark. As soon as you can be vulnerable and bring them out to the light, that's where the healing really starts. Love it. Thank you so much. Thanks, Laura. 
Thank you so much for tuning in today. And please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show. This allows us to keep bringing on amazing guests, and it also helps other athletes to find this show. Make sure to check out the show notes to follow us on social media and learn more about our awesome guest. To hear all of our amazing episodes, head on over to thepursuitofgold.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Pursuit of Gold is proud to be a Podigy production. That's all for now. Make sure to tune back in next week.